לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. This is the first Parsha of the year, Parsha Breshit. I'm Rabbi Elliot Baum, and speaking to you today from the library of the Highland Park Conservative Temple, Barry Ashton With me, as always, Rabbi Barry Chesler and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky. It's great to see you. Great to be here. I think I want to say Shana Tova because this is really when the Shana begins. The year begins with the new cycle of Torah reading. We want to jump right into this Breshit. I, I want to say that we could spend hours, hours on this Parsha. And one of the great laments that I have every year at this Parsha is that it takes 45 minutes to read. And in 45 minutes, we go through thousands of years of, of human civilization. So the first question I want to ask is, how do we understand this Parsha? What is the arc of this Parsha? Where, do, where does it begin? And where does the Parsha leave us? And well, it should be noted first that the Ark won't appear until next week. Indeed, the Ark won't appear <laughs> next week. That's the so, Ark with a K. That's okay. the Ark with a K. So the, the narrative Ark, please. The narrative Ark. Where does it begin? Where does it end? And what do we find on the way? Jeremy, take this. So, first of all, I want to note that this is fun for us for lots of reasons, but one of them is as everybody who's watching this knows, we got started doing this at camp. It's the summer partiot. We did kind of begin um, when, when the pandemic began with, with those winter partiot. But this is new for us because we've talked about many, many partiot, but none of them in Genesis. So we get, we get to have, the three of us get to exercise some, some muscles that we, uh, that we haven't uh, done before. So very excited for that. I, I would note that the Parsha's arc um, is is a is a very religious uh, tension between a perfect divine and an imperfect world. So Genesis chapter one is an incredibly orderly, thoroughly monotheistic uh, description of an infinitely powerful, omnipotent God's ability to just say, "Let there be light," and there's light, and let the chaos, you know, what, whatever sense Tovavo is a kind of primordial chaos, it, maybe it is or maybe it isn't, but God certainly masters it. And there's nothing There's nothing uh, oppositional about it. God just says, okay, let the dry land appear and let the apple trees grow and, and let the fish appear. And God is in control of everything. And the and the capstone of Genesis 1 is, God looks at all that God has done and it's excellent. It is very, very good. But by the end of Genesis, after a rebellion in the garden, and the first murder, and the first sets of genealogies, and the first sets of crimes, God looks at the human being and says, I'm really sorry that I made you, um, and your your the human impulse is just bad all day long. So I think that to, for me, the interesting religious uh, part of, the, of this arc in these first chapters of Genesis has to do with 
the goodness and order, which is real, because that is what it is to believe that there is a, a, a God and that there is order in the world. But it is very, to say the very, very least, imperfectly realized in the creatures that actually live in the world. Barry, you want to you take a shot at that? Uh, sure. Um, there's a great majesty in the first chapter and the first few verses of chapter two, which have the, the passage about Shabbat. And once we get to the Shabbat piece and we begin the so-called second story of creation, I'm reminded of the quotation from Casey Stengel, who was the first manager of the New York Mets. They had a terrible year, their opening year, and he's musing, can anyone here play this game? So in chapter one, this is God's world. It's emblematic of a perfect God. There's nothing that's out of place. There's nothing that one would do differently. Once we get past that, no one can do anything right. What's striking is the absence of good in the world that is populated by human beings. Goodness can't be given, it has to be earned. You have to sin and then recover or repent, and then you could get back on track. But that's the nature of being human. You know, when you look at chapter one, I'm, I sometimes wonder if we actually, does God really need that world? That's not all that different than what one might imagine God's existence without human beings is. But God needs human beings. We also need human beings, both large and small. And the stories that unfold after this perfect creation reflect that deep need for being human and asking ourselves, what actually is it to be human? What does it mean to live in this imperfect world? Well, I, I think I might take a little issue with that and say that, that chapter one represents an aspirational world and that chapter one, you know, especially when it when it refers to on the sixth day when God creates the human being, let us make the human being in our image after our likeness and give that human being all sorts of power. And then verse 27, which is the climactic verse, God created the human in his image, male and female created them, and gives them that, uh, that blessing. And that there is this great human dignity that is imprinted upon human beings um, of being free, of being morally free, of being uh, powerful, of having the, uh, the ability to, to have dominion over things. And, and, and it does represent an aspiration. In fact, I think, you know, built into Judaism is the, the aspiration that we return to that on a weekly basis. After all, Shabbat is a recollection of, of creation. So uh, I, I, I guess I, it's not that I want to live in chapter one, but I want to see in chapter one something that's indispensable for us. And of course, it's aspirational. Of course, we are always fighting against chaos. I think the, the themes of chapter one of Breshit are, are the bedrock themes of human civilization. I, I certainly agree with that. But I think that when the, I think that the, in the stories that follow, um, it, it's, it's where it really gets interesting. So, you know, to me, the the stories of failure um, are are just so rich and suffused with the struggle to be that fully realized human being. So I I, I firmly agree with that. 
this is the dialectical religion to believe that there is a God of order and, and a God who is good. And in fact, the paradigm of goodness and that the world is hine tov me'od. It's absolutely necessary to be a religious person, but, but also to be a religious person is to reckon with, for example, I mean, what to me is just, oh, it's such a powerful religious story. Adam, Adam violates and futile and infantile tries to hide in the trees from God who says, where are you? And Adam is called upon to answer. So to me, that, that story is the, like the, the parallel, the, the dialectical tension of, yes, God says you are B'Tselem Elohim. And Adam says, excuse me, I'm going to hide in the trees now. Yeah, but what does he know? And, and, and I mean, as we study this, this, um, this text, and as we teach this text, and I can imagine teaching it with, you know, adolescents and, and kids who, who, who see that it's, it's really not his fault. What would you do? What would you well, do in this situation? I mean, of course, every human being is going gonna, gonna to eat. You, know, you say no to someone, and that's what they're going to do. Gonna... What he knows is that he sinned, because as soon as he eats the fruit, he changes. And I think for me as a teacher, for you as rabbi, popo rabbis, a different kind of teacher, that's what education is. It's the change, is that we don't want to remain the same. We want to be someone different. And that comes with a price because we realize that who we were in the past is not who we become or who we want to be. So let me ask you just as the, as the student question, which is what, what does Adam learn then? when he eats and what does eve learn then what is that moment about I, so i would say the answer to that by the way is is not to be found in the question that you posed a minute ago like well what what, what did you expect of course there's going to be a sin because this is the, the torah's story of having to leave the the infantile paradise to contend with the world as it is okay so to me the 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 question of what adam has to reckon with is the tragic quality of his own failure, which is absolutely this. This is this is real. Okay, he doesn't belong in paradise. He belongs in the world, and so he learns that he has to get dressed, go out, and go to work. Okay, and Eve learns that you know uh, to maybe, maybe to hew too closely to the text. Um, Eve learns that that love and intimacy and and sex is going to bring pain and death also you know this is the tragic reality of this story and that's what makes it so human and we could we could apply the same set of questions to the first murderer what is what does Cain learn he learns that he thinks he can try to get out of this but he can't get out of this he has to confront the guilt that is a part of being a human being I, I think there's self-awareness there's a maturation there's i mean it does reflect everything that we 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 need to have reflected in us i, I i'm going back to you barry which is what do you want when you teach this when you teach these stories what do you want your students to learn from them so adam and eve i think is a a number of ideologies comes to explain a number of phenomena that struck our ancestors as in need of explanation. So for example, ma women, females, human beings are the only mammals that experience pain in childbirth. 
why do women do that? And the reason I think is found in my favorite museum, the American Museum of Natural History. It's the size of the brain that has expanded almost beyond the capacity of a human being to deliver. As you know, the brain, the head is what comes out first in a human being, and that is the largest part of the baby. With other mammals, the head is not as wide as the shoulders, so it makes it easier physically. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is that they're not embarrassed when the story begins because, as Jeremy said, they're like little kids. Little kids run around naked on the beach, as we all know, because they don't experience any embarrassment until they reach puberty. And that's when how you look becomes very important. It's important that you're dressed and how you dress is also important. And the third thing I would say is that you don't need children unless you know either in some conscious way or unconsciously that you're going to die. That the act of having children is intimately linked with death. If Adam and Eve had remained in the garden in their infantile paradise, which I agree 100% with Jeremy, they would be it. That would be the end of the story because everything is handed to them. And that's how little, that's paradise for a little kid when something is handed to them. For us, we want to work for reward. And that working for reward comes with all sorts of prices. The work itself is hard. Gathering food is hard. Living with each other is also very hard. I suppose that's really part of the story of Cain and Abel, that it's it's hard for two people who do different things to live together. Well, let, let's turn to Cain and Abel now. And, and, and Jeremy, you know, what, what is driving for you in this Parsha is the, the human drama. I think uh, part of our, our, our orientation to this Parsha is that while chapter one reflects a perfect aspirational world, I think the, the stories of, of Adam and Eve and their, their awareness and Cain and Abel and the first murder certainly reflects um, not aspirational uh, terms, but, but reality. And I want you to share with us. I want you to uh, relate to that. And, and, and ex I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. And I think you, you elicit a, a sense of pathos in these stories. Yes. So in, uh, in, in Genesis 4, we have the story of the birth of the two children. By the way, um, uh, the, the sexual component of the story, you know, like as, as if the, the Garden of Eden story is the introduction of sexuality is uh, as, as the, the Jewish um, commentator literature make clear by virtue of the verb structure in Genesis 4, we know that the children were born in the garden. It's not Vayeda Hadam et Chava Yishto, it's Vahadam Yada et Chava Yishto. The, the human being has already sexually known Chava the wife, so uh, they've had the children. And the, the first one is called Cain. And Eve says, Vatomer Kaniti Ishat Adonai. I have created this, cre this child with, created this person along with God. Vatosef Laledet et Achiv. And then she has another child, Et Hevel, and his name is Breath. Yeah. The first one is named. The first one is named Creation, and has a strong sense of 
of um, permanence, so to speak. And the other one is called Havel. It's just like it's evanescent in breath, and it, it, it might go away. In fact, it will go away. So uh, Havel becomes a shepherd, and Cain becomes a farmer. And, uh, and Cain works the land, brings an offering, and Havel, almost as an afterthought, brings his offering, but God pays attention to Havel's offering and likes it and rejects Cain's offering. So the first feature of this, or a feature of this, is that the world has treated Cain a little badly. Um, and Cain, you know, he's doing his best and seems to have been very uh, diligent in, in working and even in offering, and it's not working. Well, what's up with that? Why isn't it working? And in his rage, his mute rage, because it says, he says he doesn't say what he says, what Cain says to Abel, but he just, in rage, kills him. And so one of the things that I find very fascinating about this story is our reactions, or is as an archetypal human being, Cain's reaction to feeling that sense of rejection by God. Um, I think that a, a rich spiritual life has moments of great intimacy with the divine and also a sense of alienation. And at the time of alienation, he turns into a kind of violent rage. And I find that, you know, strangely and, and disturbingly uh, uh, parallel to what we see around the in the world around us. When people get resentful, they get violent. And, and that's Cain's response too. God will ultimately say to Cain, this is the, the battle of your life. Um, sin crouches at your door and sin desires you. Sin is a yetzer harat, will desire you, but you can and must rule, rule over that. In a way, you know, uh, I think I concur with that in, in the sense that, that there is a, a tremendous sense of arbitrariness, a tremendous sense of disappointment, but um, it's it's not only vengeance that Cain is being motivated by, but it's also, I think it's it's the need for attention. Uh, Abel got attention almost uh, for free. Although I would have to argue that um, the idea of being a shepherd in a world in which God has already issued a kind of ordinance that says you're only going to eat fruits and vegetables. You're essentially going to be vegetarian. Seed-bearing plants, grasses, uh, fruits, vegetables, you are to be vegetarian. And here, already by the time that these boys are mature and, and having their, um, their occupations, Cain is, is um, adhering to that divine command and Abel has taken a different, um, a different tack here. Uh, we could talk about the food aspect of this, that uh, a very efficient way of, of, of nutrition and, and protein is certainly eating meat, and that uh, short circuits a lot of things and enables Abel to, to uh, do other things. I mean, as a shepherd, you're not only watching your sheep, you can play a flute, you can tell stories, you can you know, dream a little bit. I mean, we have a certain romantic picture of the shepherd, and it's not an accident that our, our ancestors were all shepherds, and that Abel was innovative because he pushes out against um, a divine ordinance, and that the act of sacrifice, the shedding of blood, the taking of life for the service of God, is what causes God to be to take note. And, and it's that idea of God taking note 
that Cain is really upset with. And, and I, I imagine the, the drama unfolding as follows, which is, oh, oh, so God, you, you, you like the shedding of blood, or you like, you are responding, not, you, you are responding to that. Um, let, let me show you something that's even much more. Uh, I will, um, and, and here I'm interpreting the story as almost a premeditated murder. Uh, you want you want to see blood? You want to see violence? You want to you want uh, I, I, you want to have something that will draw your attention? Here's what I'll do: I'll take this other brother that I have, and I will slaughter him. And now, here, God, I'm showing you. It's a much more. It's a very dark picture here. But it's if attention is what we are after, absolutely, Jeremy. I think. Violence, there's no other way to draw your attention. It's not an accident, as far as I can see, that when people are expressing their total frustration and unbridled, they are resorting quite easily to violence. Barry. So I, I read this story quite differently, and I start with Hevel's name. Yeah, He's a wisp because he's actually inconsequential. He's necessary for the story. Cain has to kill someone, but we're not supposed to really think about him too much. Just like in the Akedah, we don't really think about Isaac so much until the rabbis come and rename the test of Abraham, the binding of Isaac. And we certainly don't think about Sarah, who undergoes similar emotions as Abraham and is never mentioned in the story. So that because the story of the Akedah is about God and Abraham. Isaac is necessary, but not really part of the story. Cain kills Abel in order to inflict pain on God. God has inflicted pain on him by denying him his offering. And I like to think of Cain as going into his father's business and he has some disabilities. He's not able, of course. He is Cain. And the earth that he tends is not productive because that's the curse that God put on the earth as a result of the sin in the garden. And so, of course, his offering cannot be as good as Abel's. What's interesting is that Abel's offering is not something that he made himself. It's something that he takes, right? The shepherd doesn't make sheep. He just tends to them. Whereas Cain, I think, is more intimately involved in the growth of the crops. And he seeks to punish God. I'd like to teach this story with the story of the two women and Solomon, because we all know the story. The two women give birth to a baby three days apart. One of the babies dies, and the, one, the mother of the dead baby takes the other baby, and then at the key moment in the story, when she has a chance to get the baby, she says, no, kill it. And the reason why she wants it killed isn't explained in the story, but I think what we're supposed to get from it is that her response to pain is that she wants someone else to feel her pain. And so she doesn't want the baby because she wants to be a mother. She'd rather have the other woman's baby dead so that woman can feel her pain. And in a similar way, Cain wants God to feel his pain. And I think there's a recognition of this at the end of the story because God changes the punishment of Cain. And I just want to add one more detail about the punishment. Originally, 
Cain is supposed to be a wanderer. So in effect, God makes Cain into Abel, the shepherd, because the shepherd wanders, doesn't stay in one place. But ultimately, Cain ends up in a city. So I'm just, I would take issue with that only in the sense that, that as an act of manslaughter, Cain has to live in perpetual exile. And if we, we, we are connecting uh, acts of manslaughter later on in the, in, the, in the Torah, one in practice and one in theory, I would say Moses lives in perpetual exile as, a, as having committed manslaughter for the Egyptian. And theoretically, the person who commits manslaughter has to live in a city of refuge exiled from the rest of the community. So Cain has to, Cain cannot live in civilization. Uh, he must be uh, a per, in permanent exile. But as you state correctly, he, he, he becomes the founder of, of the cities or at least his descendants do. Um, and look, I mean, obviously, we, you know, we're, we, we're, this is our machloket. Our machloket is the, the debate of, uh, of, of who the victim is and, and, well, not who the victim is, but, but what are the motivations here? I almost see, I'm tempted to see Abel as a proto-Jew in the sense that, that he, he is innocent. He, he, he tries to innovate and there is a certain rage that is rational from Cain and it's all about drawing that divine attention uh, to him. Um, given the fact, given the fact that um, that you know, Elliot, you were talking earlier about the the sort of paradigm quality to Genesis one, and and we will later on next week in, in Noah hear that that the spilling of human blood, uh, that that if somebody kills spills human blood they must also have their own blood spilled by, by human means uh, as, a, a, as a justified death penalty. It is interesting that, that uh, in this story, Cain is not given that penalty, even though he has in fact destroyed the human being, but Selim Elohim. Right. So the, the, the echo immediately after we hear that but Selim Elohim, that the human being is created in the image of God, is the destruction of that of that selim? It seems that there's a contending with the fragility of of the the creature in the divine image, um, and to, to me this is really a, a, a super interesting part. Also, you know, Barry said you, the, he goes into his father's business as a as a chaklai, as an agriculturalist, which is true. Also, he follows his father in another way: is that each of them have sneaky, weaselly ways of talking with God. You know. God says, "Where, where were you, Adams? Ayeka." And Adam says, well, "I was hiding. You know, I was afraid." And and God says, "Where's your brother?" And he says, ah, "Not my job." Cain says, "Hashomerach yanochi." You know, my my brother's keeper. The answer, of course, is yes. You are. You must be. But that sneakiness that that we bnei Adam have that we 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 typically lie our way out of things, and and that's. One of the moral challenges that this that this partnership poses to us. Let, let, let's. Uh, I want to just uh, go back to something you said, Jeremy, earlier, and, and draw out the ending of the parsha, since our, our our time is coming to an end here, and that the arc of the parsha moves, I guess, from what you can say, great hope, the great promise of creation, to dismay. Um, I want to say it's it's hard not to feel a sense of pathos for God. And it's hard not to feel, you know, God is the character, God is the main character, although everything is going to focus from here on in 
on, on the behavior of human beings, you know, God is a central character here and God has to find comfort. And so give us the, the sense, give us some kind of comfort here. How does the, the Parsha end with comfort? And, and where is it going to take us as we go forward, Jeremy? So the, the, we have the genealogy uh, of, of the various descendants, including the famous Methuselah, Metushalach. Um, you know, as I grow older, I, I identify more and more with Metushalach. You know, just feeling okay. so old. But <laughs> my, my kids call me Metushalach. <laughs> yeah, rotten kids. Uh, <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but when Noach is born, um, uh, Lemach names him Noach, Zeyinachamenu mimaasenu this one will comfort us from our um, from our you know misbegotten deeds and from the sadness in our hearts and that so so we have a uh, an augur or a little foreshadowing that Noah is going to be the the person who prevents God from giving up on humanity right um, God does pretty much give up on humanity and give the world his great bath and start all over again. But Noah has this name, uh, which signifies that we're not totally giving up and we're going to, there's going to be a seed of a new beginning. Um, now I want to just point out that, um, that those same, uh, words, those same roots, will kind of resonate just a few verses later when God does give up on the world and says, Vayinachem Adonai ki asa et ahadam ba'aretz vayit atsev elibo. God regretted having made the human being in the world and was sick at heart or sad at heart. So there's a, a kind of um, match between Noah and his capabilities and the despair and sadness of God. And interestingly enough, the Torah puts Noah's name first and then describes in those very same Hebrew roots the, the sadness and despair of God. I think to say, you know, like, don't worry, guys, uh, at least moderately happy ending coming. But, but God is going to be despairing and sick at heart about the failures of the human beings. And we're going to have to wait till next week to realize that even though most of the world needs, needs a washing away, there is in it the seed of the beginning again. This is Parshat Breshit, and next Parsha will be, you know, Lahatchilmi Breshit Shenit, you know, the, the beginning from God, beginning from all over again the second time. Barry, you want to? So, what I continue to think about is that one would think that God would start over again. Because Noah is a new beginning in one sense, but he is also of the seed of Adam. And he carries with him all that Adam represents, which is the seed for his own destruction. And the next time around, the same thing's going to happen on a, a different scale. We're going to have 10 generations that are also going to go downhill. And this time, God will choose Abraham to start again. And I think that we have a twofold movement here. It's God also becoming self-aware. He also seems to be learning that human beings are not what he thought they were. 
And whatever joy they bring, they also bring great sadness as well, but you can't get rid of them. Yeah. You know, this, and I think that in a sense, that's what's supposed to comfort us, that we have valleys, we reach lows, but we are all that there is in the ontological sense, I guess. And we are hopeful about the future that we can, as you said at the beginning, Elliot, we can aspire for that world of order in chapter one. We can make the end just as the beginning. So that, that's a good place to, to, to leave our, our, our talk today because that's exactly where the, the Parsha ends. It's the Noach Matzachen Bene Adonai. It may not be you know, the, 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 the promise of perfection but that promise of perfection has already transformed itself into a, at least the, the, the potential for goodness, the potential for kindness, the potential for some kind of, of grace in a human being. But Noach Matzachen, how would you translate the word chen? What would, you, what, what would be a good uh, found favor, it says in our translation? Chen is something good. I like grace. Grace. So the, we we start off with with total hope that that crashes, but a possibility for for human kindness. So grace and the kind of un a love that just blossoms forth. It's not called by anything. You know, Noah's a recipient of it because of God. Yeah, Ellie Wiesel said. Uh, you know that for a Jew, maybe maybe for all, maybe he said it for all human beings, but I, my recollection is this: for a Jew, the secret is not beginning; it's beginning again. Beginning again. And I think that's a really powerful, powerful comment in these passages. Breishit Aleph, the first Genesis chapter one, is the beginning, and and the the everything that comes after that reminds you. By the way, you know, Bnei Adam or Bnei Chava. You were going to have to begin all over again all the time. So here we are. This is such a wonderful note to, to, to end on because here we, we've begun again reading the Torah and we've left the Parsha. We're leaving the Parsha where, in fact, all human civilization has to begin again. And so we're going to begin again. And uh, we invite you to, to write to us. We invite you to speak to us, whatever. You can call us or write to us at Parsha Talk, P-A-R-S-H-A Talk at gmail.com. Jeremy set up this beautiful uh, email today. Parsha yeah, Talk. That was very creative of me to, to do it in Gmail. I was, uh, you know, I felt... It's total creativity. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll produce that. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. On a future we'll see you next week. If you want to... I, I was thinking, folks, that to our many listeners, if you wanted to send us a question, we could we could try to address it. Or, uh, or just, you know, you wanted to send us, like cash on Venmo, we can do that, anything that you want. <laughs> All right, so we want to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. A beautiful, beautiful cycle of the Torah beginning now.
מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה 102.3 מה אישים? קיץ באוויר. רדיו קול רמה 102.3 FM. כל רמה 